0: Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with another episode of Scripture Uncovered. Last week, we encountered the Annunciation and birth of both John the Baptist and of Jesus. We followed Jesus all the way up until he was 12 years old and lost in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, Now, we're going to jump ahead to when Jesus is about 30 years old. It's Passover, and as was his custom, he made his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. As he left Nazareth and came down off that finger ridge, walked across the Jezreel Valley to Beit Shon, passed through Beit Shon and crossed over the Jordan River to the east side, paralleled the Jordan all the way south to Jericho, he would have crossed back over at Jericho, back over the Jordan River. That was the fording point to go up to Jerusalem. But when he got there, it was like the intersection of the 5 and the 405 at rush hour. There were hundreds, if not thousands of people, congregating around that fording place. And there was a very strange man in the water, baptizing people. John the Baptist. Oh, we read about him. He was a Nazarite from birth. That means he had never had his hair cut. So he had hair flowing down to his waist. He was dressed in camel's hair. Have you ever smelled a camel? I don't think you would want to be dressed in camel hair. But he had a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts. My goodness, a strange figure indeed. And he is Jesus cousin, recall? So he's baptizing there in the Jordan River as Jesus is there. Baptizing. Now where did baptizing come from? We can go back to the Old Testament, search all the way through it, and we'll find nothing about baptism. We will find ritual immersion, which dates all the way back to the purification laws in Leviticus. In fact, In Leviticus 15, we read, A man or woman with a bodily discharge must wait seven days and then cleanse him or herself by immersion in living water. In the story of David and Bathsheba, when David sees Bathsheba, she had been purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. The prophet Elisha tells Naaman, the commander of Aram's military, to dip himself seven times in the Jordan River to cleanse himself of leprosy. And Jesus himself tells the leper that he cures to present himself to the priest and offer the gift prescribed, which includes ritual immersion in a mikvah. At the time of Jesus, Judaism could be divided into four major groups. The Pharisees, by far the biggest number of people, they were the people of the synagogue. We meet them all throughout the New Testament. When Paul travels from synagogue to synagogue, Jesus teaches in the synagogue. These were regular folks, pious, good people. Jesus doesn't criticize the Pharisees per se. He criticizes what can often become their hypocrisy. The second group were the Sadducees. They were the people associated with the temple worship, uh, upper-class people who had a vested financial interest in the operations of the temple. After all, three times a year, a million people came to Jerusalem and they needed a place to stay, they needed to eat, they needed all the things one would need to put on a Super Bowl, if you will. The third group were the Zealots. They were the political revolutionaries, a relatively small group, but one that will become a very influential group later on in the first century. The Great Jewish War that begins in AD 66 is led by the Zealots. And the final group were the Essenes. The Essenes said, a plague on all your houses, and they withdrew into the desert and lived in community. One such community was Qumran. Now, if we're standing, In the Jordan River, opposite Jericho at the fording place, and we're on the west bank looking east, if you turn your head to the right, about three miles or so, the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. And right up above on the northwestern corner of the Dead Sea is a plateau, and on that plateau is Qumran. That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were from. Qumran. They were hidden in all the caves around that area. The Essenes, well, they took ritual purification a big step further. For the Essenes, ritual immersion was used for initiation, that is, new members coming into the community, for annual renewal of their vows, and for daily purification. At Qumran, the main meal of the day was at noon, and before you went into the refectory, you ritually immersed yourself to purify yourself in the living water. But John the Baptist took this ritual immersion even further. John's baptism was an initiation rite, that required a candidate to do seven things. Number one, to reflect upon the condition of his soul. Number two, to feel remorse for his sins. Number three, to confess his sins. Number four, to repent of his sins. Number five, to show the fruits of his repentance. Number six, to prepare for the coming of the righteous one, that is, Christ, and, number seven, to be incorporated into the covenant community by being baptized, fully immersed in water. The Greek word is baptizo, which means literally to dip, to dip. The Essenes themselves were a separatist group, highly critical of the Sadducees and, to a lesser degree, critical of the Pharisees. They're first mentioned by Pliny the Elder in his Natural History, where he writes that they don't marry and they possess no money. Our first century historian Josephus discusses the Essenes in great detail in his History of the Jewish War, where he says that they're celibate, they have no possessions, they live in community, they practice extreme forms of asceticism, including frequent ritual immersion, and they're awaiting the coming of the Righteous One. And They have a decidedly apocalyptic vision of the future. Now, I can't prove it as 100% certain, but I'm convinced myself that both John the Baptist and Jesus were profoundly influenced by by Essene thinking. So here we are on the west shore of the Jordan River. John is standing in the water, and Jesus is there. So we begin with Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria and Triconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. That was around 26, AD 26, maybe 27. It was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance toward the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. That was John's job to pave the way, to make that announcement. But John is a strange fellow. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Oh, and don't say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. (sighs) what, What should we do then, the crowds asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him one who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors Oh, hated people, Jews who were collecting taxes for the Roman authorities. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Because a tax collector, well, if he had to give his boss another higher tax level, if he had to give him $100 per person, he would charge you 150 and keep 50 for himself. Scoundrels they were. Some soldiers came. What should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. But John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But John got into trouble for sure. When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, Herod had taken up with her, and all the other evil things Herod had done. Herod added this to them all. He threw John in prison. Well, there at the Jordan River, on Passover, the Jewish Feast of Passover, the crowds gathering. And Jesus came down the east side of the Jordan River to cross over at the fording point at Jericho. And all the people were being baptized. Jesus was baptized too. Jesus was baptized too. If baptism is toward the forgiveness of sin, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Well, he had no sin, but baptism fully identifies a person with the covenant community. And that's the point here for Jesus. But as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Now, let's pause there for a moment. We have Jesus' baptism here in Luke, but we also have it in Mark. Indeed, in Mark, we have a very interesting scene. In Mark chapter 1, verse 9, And Mark does something quite brilliant with his verb tenses here. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased." Let me probe those lines. The verbs happen simultaneously. Watch this. I'll do it again. At the time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, he was baptized by John in the Jordan. So John tips Jesus backward and places him under the water. And as John is lifting Jesus up out of the water, Picture the camera going into slow motion. Jesus, the water is flowing off Jesus' face, off his hair, off his beard, as John is lifting him out of the water. And as John is lifting him out of the water, at the very same instant, the heavens were torn open. Torn, the verb is schizo, as in schizophrenic. It's a violent tearing. And the Holy Spirit descended Not on him, but ice. Into him. Into him like a dove. That is, as the heavens are ripped open, what appeared to be a flashing silver color went right into him and through him. And at the very same time, the voice from heaven was saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now that is a dramatic scene. And then we read in Mark, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended them. He went out into the desert. Well, when you're standing there at the Jordan River outside of Jericho, and you look around, you have the city of Jericho, But everything else is desert, and it's very rugged desert. And Jesus is driven out, and he spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Rather, as the Israelites spend 40 years in the wilderness during the Exodus. Now turn over with me now to Luke chapter 4. So Jesus is in the desert. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. We don't have the same drama here as we did in Mark. But he's out there for 40 days, and he ate nothing during these days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Well, I'll bet he was. So would you be hungry if you hadn't eaten for 40 days? And the devil said to him, If you're the son of God, now I'm not saying that you are, but in the off chance, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Tell this stone to become bread. Well, if you go out in the wilderness outside of Jericho, when you begin to make your way up the old Roman road to Jerusalem and you get out of sight of Jericho, there's nothing but stones. Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered by quoting scripture, Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. It was given to him? Yes, in 1 Peter. Peter said, Satan is prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And in 1 John, we find that the prince of darkness governs the world. So the world's mind, it was given originally to Adam and Eve to care and nurture. But Adam and Eve abdicated their responsibility. And Satan was right there to pick it up. So it's mine. And all you need do is worship me, and it will be yours. And Jesus answered, again quoting Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, verse 13. It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. When we visit Jerusalem and we sit on the southern steps, as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, on the southwest corner of the temple platform was the pinnacle, the place of trumpeting. That's where the prayer call would be sounded on the shofar. It was the highest point in the temple area. Indeed, when the temple collapsed in A.D. 70 and burned, that pinnacle fell to the ground. And you can see it in the Israel Museum. It says the place of trumpeting. That's the high point here. So he took him right to that spot. And he said, now, if, You're the Son of God. And again, I'm not saying you are, but in the off chance that you might be, throw yourself down from here. For it is written in Psalm 91, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 91. Let me turn over to that and have a look. Here we go. Psalm 91. At verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Well, there it is. Satan knows scripture. Jesus had countered him by quoting scripture twice. So now... Satan throws Scripture at him. But Satan knows Scripture very well. Notice how verse 11 began. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. But go up to verse 9, the beginning, and we read there's a condition here. If You make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge. Then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, if you make the Most High your dwelling. Well, you better not debate Scripture with the Lord Jesus Christ, because you're going to lose. So when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, until an opportune time. Now, pause there for just a moment. Jesus had come to Jerusalem on Passover, and that's when he was baptized. Immediately afterward, he's driven out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he comes back. Now, what's the next pilgrimage festival? Passover, then 50 days later, Pentecost. Passover remembers the Exodus, Pentecost, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And we saw the parallels between the two, Passover at Mount Sinai, or Pentecost at Mount Sinai, and Pentecost when Peter preached his first sermon. Pentecost at Mount Sinai, with Moses, marked the birth of Israel as a covenant community under law, and 3,000 people died. Pentecost, A.D. 32, marked the birth of the church as a covenant community under grace, and 3,000 people were saved. The law was given on the first Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was given on Pentecost, A.D. 32. Now, Jesus comes back after 40 days and it's just now time for Pentecost so the crowds are big again uh, right there at the fording point opposite Jericho and Jesus comes into town there were so many people there that the religious leaders up in Jerusalem thought what's going on down there in Jericho the only thing we hear up here in Jerusalem is what's happening down there so they sent a delegation to find out And in John chapter 1, verse 19, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. In other words, who is this guy? What's he doing? And why aren't we in charge? Well, John did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Well, they ask him then, who are you, Elijah? At the end of the book of Malachi, Elijah is to come as the forerunner. I am not. Are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people, I'll be leaving. Moses will die at the end of Deuteronomy. I'll be leaving, but another like me will come. It's him you must listen to. Another one, the prophet who will come. Are you him? No. And I just love that. I am not the Christ. I am not. No, get out. Finally, they said, Well, then, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, some pharisees who had been sent questioned him well why then do you baptize if you're not the christ nor elijah nor the prophet and john replied i baptize with water but among you literally in your midst stands one you do not know <laughs> i baptize with water but in your midst stands one you do not know. And I'll bet you anything that Jesus was there on the edge of the crowd watching this whole scene. And John looked up and saw him on the edge of the crowd. Jesus now, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, a bit thinner than he was when he was baptized, but I'll bet anything that John looks up at Jesus, Jesus looks at John, they wink at each other, and the message is delivered. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. All this happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, wait a moment. John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins they would have grown up together. Jesus lived in Nazareth, John at Ankerim, outside of a suburb outside of Jerusalem. But they would spend holidays together. There's a lovely painting of the young John the Baptist and Jesus in the carpenter shop in Nazareth, and they're helping Joseph with their work. Of course, John knew Jesus. But I didn't truly and fully comprehend who he is until I baptized him just 50 days earlier, when the heavens were ripped open and the Holy Spirit descended into him. Only then did I fully comprehend. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify, he is the Son of God. Well, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, And when he saw Jesus passing by, once again, he said, look, Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following, and he said, what do you want? Well, if you're walking along and a group of men pass by, and then two of them peel off and fall in behind you, wouldn't you ask, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said, Have room 631 at the Hyatt. He said, come, I'll show you. So they went and they saw where he was staying. And they spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. The 10th hour in John would be 10 in the morning. So early in the morning, about 10 o'clock, they went with Jesus to where he was staying and it was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and our Apostle, John. Imagine being with Jesus privately from 10 in the morning until dinner time. What did they talk about? Oh, I would love to have been there. But at the end of the day, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had to say and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Peter and tell him, we have found the Messiah, the Christ. So spending the day with Jesus from 10 in the morning until 5 at night, they were convinced that he was the promised Messiah. Promised from all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, When God said to the serpent, He, the one who will come, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head. So they brought Peter. And Jesus looked at him, and he said, So you're Simon, son of John. From now on you'll be called Cephas, which means rock, or translated, Peter. From now on, you're the rock. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, so they're going back home now. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Well, apparently Jesus had walked with others or had met others in Jerusalem, and they had all planned to walk back together. So, okay, you ready to go? Off we go. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee, if you look at the Sea of Galilee like a clock, at about 11, uh, 12 o'clock, well, 10 after 12, on the clock, about two miles north is Bethsaida. That had been right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in Jesus' day, between then and now, the lake has silted in somewhat with the Jordan River flowing into it up north. But come on, we're, we're headed out. So, Philip found Nathaniel, and he told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. We found the Messiah. <laughs> And Nathaniel said, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And, I, and I've always heard taught that, well, Nazareth was a tiny little town up in the Galilee of no particular importance, really about 20 extended families, a couple of hundred people. And that's true. It was a small town. But Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Well, Galilee, in the first century A.D., particularly as we move on in the first century, Galilee was a hotbed of radical revolutionary thought and action. We mentioned the Zealots. The Great Jewish War, A.D. 66 to 72, the Great Jewish War, is triggered by the Zealots who were from Galilee. What good can come from there? Look, you don't want anything to do with this guy. It's nothing but trouble. No, come. You got to come see. So when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, Now here's a genuine Israelite, a true, authentic, genuine Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Now what a weird thing to say. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Under the fig tree, a euphemism, for I saw you sitting in the shade reading. And what was he reading? Nathanael declared, Then if you know that, you are the Son of God the king of Israel. What was he reading? Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. And he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What was Nathaniel reading? He was reading the story of Jacob, fleeing to Uncle Laban from his brother Esau stopping at Bethel on the way north falling asleep with his head on a rock and he had a dream you'd have a dream too if you slept with your, your head on a rock but what was the dream? A ladder reaching up to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it That's what Nathanael was reading. And Jesus knew not only what he was reading, but what he was thinking about it. On the third day, that is, a three-day journey from Jericho up to Galilee, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, pause there for a moment because Jesus just met these guys. They're going to walk back to Galilee together. So they would cross the fording point opposite Jericho, walk north on the east shore of the Sea of Galilee, the east bank of the Sea of Galilee, all the way up to Baitshan, and then they would cross back over. The others would continue north up to the Sea of Galilee. Jesus would cut across the Jezreel Valley up into Nazareth. And Cana, Cana's adjoining Nazareth today. But there they were at Bateshawn. And if you had met Jesus, and you walked with him for three days, would you want to leave? I wouldn't. And they didn't want to leave either. And I don't think Jesus wanted to leave them. He liked these guys. So he said to them, Would you guys like to go to a wedding? Sure, why not? So they go to the wedding at Cana. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Jesus and Mary had been invited to the wedding. Jesus invited the guys. Now when the wine was gone, Jesus said to his mother, They have no more wine. Uh, Jesus' uh, mother said to him, They have no more wine. Jesus said, So, what's that have to do with me? My my time has not yet come. And I'll bet Mary raised one eyebrow and looked at him. Why did they run out of wine? If you go to a wedding in the Middle East, I've been to Palestinian weddings and Jewish weddings in Israel and in Bethlehem. The whole town turns out. And the party goes on for three or four days. The caterer, the master of the banquet, knows how to throw a shindig. Run out of wine? Impossible. Unless some uninvited guests had come who drank a lot of wine. And apparently that is just what happened. His mother said to the servants, do what he tells you. So nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Six water jars holding 20 to 30 gallons. What's this? 150, 160, 170 gallons of water? And Jesus said, fill the jars with water. So they filled them. "'He told them, now draw some out, "'take it to the master of the banquet, the caterer.' "'They did so, and the master of the banquet "'tasted the water that had been turned into wine. "'He, he didn't realize where it had come from, "'though the servants who had drawn the water knew. "'And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, "'I'm, oh, I'm terribly sorry. Every, "'Everyone brings out the best wine first "'and keeps the two-buck chuck to the end "'after people are drunk.' But you saved the best till now. I I am so sorry. Now this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And John was there. He witnessed it. And John and all the other guys drank some of that really good wine. I love reading this story. Unfortunately, when you go to Cana and you buy Cana wine, it is the worst wine In Israel, how things have deteriorated. Well, thus he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. They knew he was something truly, truly special. Well, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. So after the wedding, A big wedding, a big party. And after it was all over, Peter said to the others and to Jesus and Mary, would you guys like to come to my house for an after party? (laughs) And that's what they do. That is what they do. Well, that brings us right up. I went a little long on this, but I I just love this story. And uh, well, We'll be back on Wednesday and push on right ahead. Thank you now. Bye-bye.